Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Policy Foreign Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pierce. Policy Foreign Pod is produced in the beautiful surrounds of Crawford School, where the region's leading graduate policy school. You can find out more about our amazing range of short courses or degrees at crawford.anu.edu.au. Do check it out. There's something for everyone there. And I'm delighted today to be joined in the studio by, it's been a long time between drinks, Sarah Bice. Hello. Hey, Martin. How are you going? I'm really good. It's great to see you again. Yeah, you as well. Thanks for having me. Uh, Sarah is an associate professor here at Crawford School. She is also the vice chancellor's futures scheme senior fellow, easy for me to say, for (laughs) her work on the Next Generation Engagement Program. Amazing thing. Check that out. Uh, It's Australia's largest study into community engagement in infrastructure. Now, Sarah, given your uh, cultural background, I'm interested in uh, what you've made of Donald Trump's visit to the UK on his comments on UK politics, the Duchess of Sussex, and uh, what he said about Sadiq Khan. Well, Martin, uh, from a very personal perspective, for many years now, I've been privileged to travel on two passports, and I've always thought that was really cool because I'm kind of like James Bond. I am thinking about giving one up. It's a little embarrassing. So we've seen quite the special diplomacy this past few days. Special diplomacy in the special relationship. Special diplomacy in in the special relationship. Uh, It's certainly not sad. It's tremendous. So what we're seeing here uh, is Donald Trump uh, trampling over what we would consider normal diplomatic standards. And there's a lot of discussion at the moment coming out of Washington, D.C., policy pundits and also diplomats and former diplomats speaking out about their concerns around the ways in which this trip uh, may be changing diplomacy and diplomatic expectations and the degree to which uh, President Trump may be seen as meddling in UK political affairs at a very contentious and difficult time. Yeah, so give us a bit of a rundown of some of some of the highlights of his uh, UK state visit so far. Mm, well, let's discuss first whether these are highlights or lowlights, Martin. We can we can talk about that. The New York Times has described this particular trip as a, and I love this, a juxtaposition of high pageantry and low name calling. And that began even before Trump got off of Air Force One when he tweeted some very uh, childish remarks about London's Lord Mayor, calling him, quote, a stone-cold loser. I think Trump's age is kind of telling in the forms of, uh, you know, uh, torture or or word use that he uses for his uh, perceived opponents. But poor Sadiq Khan received this tweet directed at him before Trump was off of Air Force One. Uh, Ahead of that visit, 
even before he was there, the U.S. ambassador, Woody Johnson, who's a friend of Trump, uh, noted that the, quote, entire economy is on the table in a potential trade deal post-Brexit. So there's also some critique about this being a very opportunistic visit. And just yesterday, Trump, uh, following a meeting with Theresa May, described the opportunities for a post-Brexit U.S.-Britain trade deal as, quote, phenomenal. Phenomenal. So there's right. some phenomenal things going on here today, Martin. So it's quite a roll call of uh, of shame there. Look, it's a roll call maybe of shame, but also of a number of important figures. And so over the weekend, there was uh, the report from a Sun interview in the UK where the reporter asked Trump whether he was uh, pleased that Meghan Markle would not be attending the diplomatic and state dinners because she, as many of us know, is on maternity leave. And the reporter asked this question because Markle had come out against Trump during the 2016 campaign to say that she was opposed to him and that should he be elected, she would move to Canada. As it turned out, she became Duchess of Sussex and moved to the UK. Uh, But Trump then called her, uh, well, he said, I didn't know she was nasty. Uh, He then later said that he never said she was nasty. And the son then released audio recordings of him saying, I didn't know she was nasty. So we can debate the semantics on that one. Trump has also uh, had a bit of a to and fro tete-a-tete with labor leader Jeremy Corbyn, who initially refused to attend a state banquet with Trump, then invited Trump to attend a sit-down one-to-one meeting about relationships and policy between the U.S. and Britain. Trump then refused and called Corbyn quote, a negative force. Meanwhile, he's really pleased with his friendship with Nigel Farage and believes that uh, Boris, the former London mayor, would make a terrific prime minister. So he's really meddling in everything that he possibly can. Uh, As you say, a very sensitive time in, uh, in UK politics. Look, I think, you know, for all the jokes that we can make about tweets and stone cold losers and his front page tabloid debate with Meghan Markle. The real concern here is what it says about the U.S. and British relationship and also what it means for the appropriate levels and engagement between countries around domestic matters. And so for Trump, this is becoming a little bit of a pattern in which before he makes a state visit or an overseas trip, he tries to raise a bit of controversy. There's usually quite a few tweets and a bit of profile. And as we saw, for example, with the recent visit to Japan, this mostly happens before the trip. And then once he's on the ground, he becomes re-obsessed with what's happening at home. And so one of his most recent tweets on this particular journey has been a complaint that most UK venues and hotels have CNN, but not Fox News. And indeed, while he was in Japan, he spent much of his time berating colleagues, including those who are deceased uh, back in the United States. There's plenty of lessons to be learned from that. So there you go, listeners. You've heard what we thought about uh, Trump's visit to the UK. What have you made of it? Let us know in all the usual ways. Uh, you know, Twitter, where we're at, Policy Forum, on the Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod, or email podcast at policyforum.net. And if you're on the Facebook group, you might have your opportunity to get your hands on one of our mugs. Sarah, have you got your hands on one of our fantastic, I got 99 policy problems, but a brew ain't one mug yet oh i sure do whoop whoop and is it going everywhere with you uh yes i keep it in my bag i'm traveling it it is carry on ready so yes if you want a mug that's going to go everywhere with you and remind you of the days when you were listening to hova 
this is the mug for you. So there you go, listeners. If you'd like to get your hands on one of these exclusive, very short-run Policy Forum pod mugs, there are now, as we said last week, two ways to do this. Uh, We actually posted a photo this week on the uh, Policy Forum pod Facebook group. Get on there if you're not a a member already. Do jump in and join the conversation. So we posted a photo there of Archie, my dog, who is the chairperson. I'm not sure that's the right word to use. Highly official. Highly official. Elected. Elected chairperson of the Policy Forum Mug Committee. And you can see from the photo that he's been porpoisefully doing his job with dogged dogged determination (laughs) to respond to the many of people who have been hounding us over getting their hands on on a Policy Forum pod mug. Uh, so to reiterate, there are now two ways to do that. Number one, you can suggest to us via the Facebook group a topic for the pod, and if we later make that into an episode of Policy Forum pod, then you will get your hands on one of these mugs. But the second way to do that is if you have one of your comments or questions read out on the pod, and that's either Policy Forum pod or Democracy Sausage, our other podcast, um, then it's up to you to hear and actually notice that these things have been read out. And if you do, in the Facebook group, under the podcast post, just say, question one, question two. And once you get to question five, we will send you one of these mugs. Now, no cheating. We will know, uh, uh, even though it's up to you to be recording them because we listen to these podcasts too. But there's now two fantastic ways to get your hands on one of these mugs, and we're really looking forward to sending them out to you. And in fact, this week, there's been lots of discussion, a whole range of really interesting issues on the Facebook group. There was a great question from Liam Hughes, who asks, what are everyone's thoughts on nuclear power? Which I thought was a good thing to ask with respect to some of the discussions we've been having around energy change. Sarah, what are your views on nuclear power? Oh, Martin, with all that discussion before about Trump, I feel like because Trump, because the Simpsons predicted Trump, maybe we should just look to the Simpsons for our views on nuclear power. Uh, but that would be not a university perspective. So, so let's let's take a more scholarly and serious perspective. This is a question that I'm being asked a lot recently in my role as an ANU Energy Change Institute director. Just last week, I was giving a public lecture around social license to operate for the transition to renewables within Australia. And one of the audience members said, you know, in this discussion, what do we think about a social license to operate for nuclear? Historically, within Australia, nuclear has been and remains very controversial. There is a very large opposition to nuclear power. Part of the reason I do think for that is because we are also the physical source of much of the world's uranium resource. And so for us as Australians, I think that nuclear power, not only all the questions around reactors and safety and usage, is also very closely intertwined with questions about how do we deal with the mining that's required to extract the uranium. We know at the Ranger uranium mine, Jabaluka, uh, there is a long-term standing agreement between Rio Tinto and the local indigenous community not to mine, and that would not occur without community consent. So I think we're in a, a very complex landscape where the question about nuclear within Australia is not just about the power generation itself, which we do know to be clean, Uh, And we do know scientifically that nuclear can offer clean power. The challenge is that when the risks, which are rare, do occur, they are extraordinarily highly impactful. 
and we have the correlated question about nuclear waste. And we've seen some of the debates about that in South Australia over the past few years. So I think nuclear will be something that continues to come up in conversation and in debate. It is not something that I see personally coming onto the policy agenda anytime soon. I think that Australia is so focused on developing renewable energies that that seems to be the thrust of uh, policy and uh, and public discourse at the moment rather than talking about um, nuclear energy. I, as an aside, I've been watching the uh, TV series Chernobyl this week and that's a really sobering reminder of, as you say, those risks are very small, but how terribly, terribly wrong things can go when those, when those risks, risks actually come to fruition. That's right. And I think even just the idea of those possibilities and also of dealing with nuclear waste, which again is, is a different but related issue, they're very difficult uh, to work through because there is always going to be the situation of needing to locate these things somewhere. Colleagues that I work with uh, in Canada, for example, are struggling at the moment to determine where to put Canada's nuclear waste because uh, even if we don't have nuclear power, we still have nuclear waste from things like radioactive medical waste. And so they're really working to determine how do we consult with communities about where waste should go. And that was what the citizens' jury in South Australia was also about The problem there is that there will always be winners and losers, and the losers in these cases around nuclear uh, are are pretty potentially big losers. So there you go, Liam. You've heard our thoughts on nuclear power, but what about the rest of you listeners? What are your thoughts on nuclear power? Does it have a future in Australia? Please do get in contact with us. As I said, the best way to do that is to jump on the Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod, but you can also reach us on Twitter, where at Policy Forum or shoot us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. Now, how about we get on with the topic of this week's show, because it's one that I am really interested in. Today, we want to have a look at the future of electric vehicles in Australia. Electric vehicles are at the heart of sustainable mobility all over the world. In Norway, electric vehicles make up nearly 60% of sales. Uh, in Iceland, they've reached a share of 11.7%. Over 1 million new electric vehicles have been added to the global fleet each year for the past three years. Yet in January this year, an Australian Senate report pointed out that Australia was lagging behind in electric vehicle uptake due to a and I quote here, an overarching absence of policy direction from Australian governments and recommended the government should prioritise the development of a national EV strategy. Now, despite that, car manufacturers are already driving ahead, pursuing opportunities in electric vehicle development. Major companies such as Toyota have uh, have announced uh, fairly significant e-vehicles sales targets. So we want to ask today, What are the hurdles that policymakers need to overcome to make electric vehicles more attractive than their fuel-powered cars? And also, what are the barriers for consumers in actually buying these cars? Why has Australia got such a low uptake? And we've got a fantastic lineup of experts to unpick this topic, haven't we, Sarah? Oh, absolutely we do, Martin. And I think you've really hit again on a key policy issue here in Policy Forum Pod. It's great to be so timely. 
I spend a lot of time in Beijing, and one of the things that I see there is a very high proportion of electric vehicles. And I'm told that Shanghai, Beijing, and Guangzhou have some of the highest per capita e-vehicle use globally. And it really does seem to be making a difference, particularly in these highly concentrated cities around air pollution. So we're very lucky to be talking about something so timely and an important question for Australia as a new government comes in. And we're joined today by some terrific experts. Uh, first, we'd like to introduce Dr. James Press. James is a senior lecturer at the ANU College of Law. He's also a member of the executive of the Australian National University's Energy Change Institute, so I see James quite a bit, uh, where, which is a cross-campus interdisciplinary network devoted to energy issues. We are also pleased to welcome Dr. Liz Hanna. Liz is a senior fellow at the ANU Fenner School of Environment. She's chair of the Environmental Health Working Group of the World Federation of Public Health Associations. And last but certainly not least, we're pleased to welcome Dr. Michael DePercy. He's an academic fellow and senior lecturer at the University of Canberra's Institute for Governance and Policy Analysis. Michael's research focuses on the role of institutions in understanding how policy decisions made in the past influence the options available for the present. So I guess the decision to use the internal combustion engine might be something that Michael has some opinions about today. Well, I'm really looking forward to hearing what the panel have got to say, because I've got to think, I've got to say electric vehicles is one of those things that strikes me as utterly inevitable. It's going to happen that we're going to transition to electric vehicles. But it just I find it slightly perplexing about the pace of change. I'm just hanging out for hover cars. <laughs> or a hoverboard. Yeah, even. exactly. Yeah, Back take, to the Future 3. <laughs> I would take either of those. Get the uh, plug in the flux capacitor. No worries. Yeah, a bit of time travel. Why not? <laughs> so it's a great lineup. Uh, but do you know what else is fantastic about this topic? This topic was not our idea. This was not idea that was actually suggested by one of our listeners, uh, one of our Policy Forum Pod group members. It was Mitzi Bolton. Hello, Mitzi. So guess what, Mitzi? You've won yourself one of our much-coveted Policy Forum Pod mugs. Woohoo! You ain't getting mine. <laughs> Congratulations, Mitzi. So you see, listeners, it is actually kind of easy to do. Give us a good topic. We'll ponder it for a little bit. And if we end up making it into a podcast, then you can get your hands on one of those mugs. And as I said, the best way to do that is on the Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod. But for now, let's drive ourselves forward into a world of electric vehicles and meet our panel. Well, hello, and uh, I'd like to welcome our fantastic panel that we've got today. Uh, Michael De Percy, hello. Hello, Martin. Good to be here. Great to have you here. James Brest, hello. G'day, Martin. Good to see you again. And Liz Hanna, great to have you back in the studio. Well, the cupboard. <laughs> right. Yeah, greetings. Hi. Hello to all. So I want to start this off by reflecting on the recent federal election. Labor went into the election with a policy of a national target of 50% of new car sales being electric vehicles by 2030, but they didn't get into government. The coalition was re-elected. How much of a setback is that to uh, electric vehicle take up in Australia? Perhaps, James, I'll throw that question at you. I do think that it is a setback because, you know, there was a clear division, I guess, in terms of positions on electric vehicles and you know the the current incumbent government um, people that spoke on EVs, they tended to take quite a negative approach to EVs and and perpetuated a number of myths about electric vehicles. So um, 
you know, I think that the and and it's likely the current approach of having really no federal policy on electric vehicles um, is likely to continue um, at least for some time. There is there is a commitment um, to bring in some EV policy, um, but we haven't seen a deadline of when that's going to happen by, and we haven't seen much detail about that. So, um, you know, on the flip side, I guess. I'd be saying there's a lot of scope for state and uh, territory action on EVs. And secondly, that I think just the this is a global market in electric vehicles and some factors that are international are just going to be out of the control of the federal government. So even if the federal government wanted to delay introduction of EVs um, for whatever reason, um, you know, they won't be able to achieve that. So, you know, this is something that in some way is going to happen on its own, but it's really a question of whether we want policy intervention uh, to accelerate the move towards electric vehicles. So this change is coming whether government like it or not. Um, but as it stands, Australia is coming last among Western countries for electric vehicle take-up. Uh, electric vehicles globally have a market share of around 2%, but in Australia, it's just 0.2%. Michael, let me get your thoughts. Why has the country struggled to implement a sort of coherent e-vehicle policy? It's an interesting thing in the Australian context. Australians generally are very good at taking up new technologies, but Australian governments are very bad at enabling those technologies. And we see this throughout the history of uh, especially uh, electronic technologies. Wireless, for example, back in the early 20th century was effectively blocked by government for 20 years when the rest of the world was active in that space experimenting. So, so in many ways, I see that sort of contradiction. And once Australians have access to the technology, they, they tend to take it up quite well. So I'm a little concerned about um, an industry policy approach by government to introducing this, as opposed to looking at the existing institutions and enabling some sort of market-based approach, which is, as as you said, uh, in, inevitable in the, in the international context. So, so for me, that the institutional framework is where we really need to be thinking about it. Uh, and it's the area that we tend, uh, in terms of government policy, to not really think about how that impacts the ability for us to take up these new technologies. So just to clarify, when you talk about the institutional framework, what, what exactly are you referring to there? Well, so for example, uh, at, at the moment, if you look at the, the general landscape of our transport network, the highways and service stations and so on, um, th there's no real uh, ability for businesses to deploy charging stations, for example, for EVs. Um, there's, there's nothing in the policy. And in general, what we see is uh, in, in these early sort of innovation stages, um, a business will attempt to do something and then it will breach some sort of law that hadn't been thought about, which will then cancel the ability for that infrastructure to be deployed. And eventually, we'll then lean toward a government solution because we didn't have the institutional framework established in such a way that would enable the market to function. James. Well, so so in terms of this availability of charging infrastructure, um, this is, I guess, one of the the plus points in a way, and if, because the the state and territory uh, parliaments typically have responsibility for land use planning, so they can move now to really clarify the rules about whether you need a development approval to install a charger, what types of land use you know, restrictions there are, and really clarify, remove doubts about where you can install a charger. So, so all local government authorities and state government planning ministers can get onto that you know, right now. Um, and that's really important because, you know, 
that, and it's something that's not really in the control of of um, the, the federal parliament. So I would say that that is that's something that can be dealt with. There is already you know quite a big network of um, charging infrastructure in terms of. Um, some particular states in Australia and Queensland have, have in some ways led the way in terms of installation of fast charging uh, and a, a charging highway. Um, but, you know, there's a lot that can be done in terms of, um, you know, just just making it clear uh, about where it's okay to install charge points and also, the, you know, the, to take that further, how much we want to actually place obligations on the developers of major developments such as shopping centres and apartment buildings to include the wiring at least so that they're EV charge point ready rather than having to retrofit those uh, buildings to install this wiring at a later date. Um, and I think the smart businesses are aware that if they install the charging points, they're actually going to have uh, more sticky customers. These customers will actually come and stay at the business for longer because they want to be there while they're charging. So that change could be coming, but it could be led by state and territory governments. It could be led by local councils in terms of their sort of planning regulations and stuff like that. Um, but one of the ways that e-vehicle uptake has been encouraged is incentives. Uh, many countries, for example, Germany, incentivize uh, electric vehicles to uh, encourage a transition away from uh, fuel-based cars. Uh, in Germany, buyers get a rebate of €4,000 on the price of a purely electric vehicle. Would an incentive like that be an option for Australia as well? I mean, look, definitely. The thing is that, I guess, tax policy overall is is the responsibility of the federal parliament. And while um, we, we we have this narrative against electric vehicles and action on climate change, um, we're not likely to see that, that kind of action happening. But certainly, I think if you look at Norway, why do they have 50% of new vehicle sales um, being in EVs? That's because the tax treatment of EVs is is um, beneficial towards EVs. Um, so, you know, there's things like the luxury car tax um, that applies to the more expensive EVs, um, you know, treatment of... There's many different ways they could reform tax law to to encourage um, electric vehicles. Just one way that we might not have thought about is a tax incentive for R&D in terms of um, electric vehicles, battery storage, and so on. Um, I mean, we have an incentive for the film industry, you know, I mean, I'm not encouraging like an incentive for every little industry that we want to develop, but conceivably that's one way you could use tax law to to encourage um, EVs. Liz, let me turn to you. Can you think of any other policy levers that the government could use to encourage people to buy more electric vehicles? Yeah. So with from the perspective of public health, um, one of the areas that we sort of focus on is is human behaviour change. Um, and particularly at a population level. Um, and the things that would motivate people to change their mind is that they have to believe that something is good and worthwhile um, and the choices have to be easy. Um, and so currently we've got a situation where uh, many people believe <coughs> the switch is good, uh, but the disincentives are overwhelming. Um, and so they they do need to be removed. And, and it's <coughs> optimistic um, 
good to hear the the optimism from um, from our colleagues here. Um, but from the from the government in particular has been has been very disappointing. So post election um, and the loss of some of these opportunities has seen you know quite a few in the public health movement fit, move into a fit of despair. Um, and this is largely based, of course, on the fact that we're uh, we're at the coalface. If that's not a dirty word, yes, it is a dirty word. Um, in in contact with people, recognizing the health. The health imposition that they're facing. So, hence the fact it's much more emotive for us. I do as, want as to... we're seeing and working with the pain. So we're, you know, it's the urgency that we're really, really keen. So keen to see. So th- those removing those disincentives and, and a price uh, signal is is uh, is certainly a major major obstacle at the moment, and particularly the, um, the ease and the facilitation of it all. So again, it's getting back into people's behaviour and what their commuting. Uh, commuting patterns are, um, and the needs that they need, such as you know visiting vi- visiting interstate relatives, friends, family, whatever. Um, and so the EVs and the ease of charging at home um, is is all a good thing. But again, as we were saying, it um, opens up potentially market opportunities for um, you know for uh, accessing vehicles on those ca- occasions where you do need to do the rural uh, rural visits. You mentioned health benefits there, and I do want to come back to that a little later. But I want to pick up on something that James was saying, and it ties in with the question that we've had on our Facebook group. We're Policy Forum Pod on Facebook. If you want to jump in and join the conversation on there, you'd be very welcome. And we had a question from Liam Hughes who asked, should the government own stroke develop EV infrastructure or should it let fuel companies and other private companies go ahead with developing these. Should these be free or paid? Perhaps, Michael, if I can hear your thoughts on that. I tend to uh, lean toward a market solution. Um, now, maybe not in rural areas. One of the big problems I find is that governments, Australian governments tend to rest on a cost recovery model, which means you don't really know how much you're cross-subsidising. Whereas if we were to separate the areas where the market works from those that don't, so rural areas get subsidised and we know how much it costs and we accept that as a cost rather than trying to hide it in the figures. Uh, so so my, that's my sort of preferred option here. Uh, you mentioned some ideas from Germany. I, I find that we're so much closer to the United States when it comes to transport policy. You can't just get on a train or a tram in, in everywhere. You, we're heavily reliant on vehicles. Our lifestyle is reliant on vehicles. So I think EVs are a great way to improve health benefits, uh, uh, environmental impact without necessarily disrupting the way that we're used to living and have have done so for a long time, so so I suppose um, r- really where I think is that um, government owning infrastructure uh, is not necessarily a bad thing, but it tends to prevent uh, other competition. So if if it were to be, for example, a let's say a EV charging network that the government owned the duct structure and let anyone else provide services through that structure, that's one thing. But we tend not to do that. We tend to have a complete government ownership model, which then uh, leads to legacies in the future uh, that that are really hard to undo. So so I'm just cautious of that government ownership model, especially. I mean, governments don't own service stations. Why should they own? EV charging points, for example. And government doesn't actually have a great track record at delivering that kind of infrastructure, does it? Well, it's it's not so much, it's not a critique of government, but it's the process of government. I mean, in the market, it's about 
giving the consumer what the consumer wants uh, in order to stay competitive. But government's role is not to do that. It's to actually look after the, the public interest. And sometimes the public interest is not what consumers want. And and the trouble is that when we start crossing boundaries of consumption versus citizenship, we end up with these situations where uh, government ends up playing politics and interest groups play politics, which doesn't necessarily deliver the services that we need. And, and that's where I'm always cautious about that, uh, you know, that potential for pork barreling and other things that provides inefficient solutions at public cost when the market could actually be delivering many of these uh, with, with the, the infrastructure. And if you look at the way that we've moved from service delivery and separating that from policy areas within the APS, for example, um, and to me, that's what our policy areas should be focused on is what are those institutional barriers uh, and how can we actually free those up or enable those where we're protecting the public interest, but also delivering what consumers want or need uh, in order to move to the new technology. We've talked a lot so far about policy interventions and about market solutions to this, but one of the barriers to EV uptake is surely consumers themselves. Um, you know, in Australia, we hear a lot about you know, sort of range anxiety about whether these electric vehicles can cover the kind of distances that are needed to get between our major cities. Um, so perhaps, James, if I can ask, ask you, uh, what's your thought about why consumers aren't buying the electric vehicles that are on offer already? Look, I'd say the primary reason is really price. Um, the secondary reason would be unfamiliarity with the technology. Um, but so in relation to, say, price, I mean, the, the clear policy um, response to that is to is to look at the taxation arrangements with the purchase of the vehicles. Um, and, you know, I, I think um, one of the aspects that people may not know about is the option to directly import vehicles. Um, those rules have been uh, relaxed slightly uh, in December 2018. Um but really, I think that you know the competition is going to come in to the market anyway. Um, so that that's that's something that's 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 um, that's gradually gradually building. I mean, there are charge points that are available. Um, it's really a matter of people looking at the economics of the situation, and particularly, I think you'll find households that start to buy um, an EV as a second car, and they realise all of my travelling around town is really, on average, maximum 100 kilometres a day. Even if they're kind of, you know, the worst in inverted commas EV is going to have a 200k range. Um, really, you're not really in great danger of running out of, of juice you know, throughout the day. So um, certainly for the second around town uh, driving car. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Um, people are going to take up EVs, especially if they can get one, you know, sub $30,000. Um, so at that point, if the price gets to that point, you think you'll find a, a really big um, uptake. Can you tell us a little bit? Um, 
you know, the, but I think there's some little little detailed tax reform things, which which um, kind of and and you know legislative reforms that could happen. So around the direct importation of vehicles, that the rules again there could be streamlined. Um, secondly, uh, so the salary sacrifice rules they tend to have a bias towards um, import, uh, the use of the the um, conventional ICE vehicles, um, internal combustion vehicles. Um, so there are a couple of examples where a little bit of reform could um, you know smooth the way for EVs. Um, so just on, to go back to the the charging infrastructure, I mean, you, you, I think there is quite a lot of action already by the private sector and organisations like NRMA who have been putting in charging infrastructure. And I, I tend to agree in terms of, um, you know, let the market do its thing, but there will be situations where the government could make strategic um, interventions if you'd say, look, there's a market failure, the market's not going to install in this particular place, um, say in the middle of the Nullarbor, um, not that that many of us drive across the Nullarbor, but um, you know, obviously a place there, it's it's going to, um, you know, provide quite a national network of charging. There may be strategic interventions where the, where the free market wouldn't install the charge point, but for, it's in the public and national interest to, to have that EV highway. And I think the Queensland government's recognised that already in terms of putting its charge points in. But I, I, I guess the point is that, you know, they don't want to crowd out uh, private investment, but so it's not really an either or thing, right? So supplement private investment in charging where um, where it's not happening. Is there a a visibility of the infrastructure issue here that's playing a sort of psychological role in Australian consumer take up? Because we're used to with our cars, if we want to fill them up, we've got to go to these giant petrol stations. They're very visible. Um, whereas with something like electric vehicles, it's a very small, uh, far less visible charging point. Is that having a psychological impact on consumer take up? Well, I'm, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, so maybe don't ask me about this, right? But, but I think um, I think the main barrier is the price. Once, if you had a twenty-five thousand dollar electric car available, um, you'd find a lot of people buying it, and they'd certainly find their way to charge the vehicle. And if they can charge the vehicle and have one third the running cost of a fossil fuel vehicle, um, you know, obviously it makes economic sense. So the main barrier is really to get to that point where it is the people do the sums and work out well it's clearly cheaper to own and operate the EV that then you're going to find this this rapid uptake um, so at the moment there are charges in the middle of the city sitting there empty I mean if it was a, a fossil fuel bowser sitting there completely unattended if free serve yourself people would be lined up for miles around the car park uh, so it's really a matter of that just the EVs are not there, and one of the questions that that perhaps was being pushed by the the EV Association um, uh, Electric Vehicle Council in the Senate inquiry into EVs was was perhaps you know the response of maybe some of the um, the car manufacturers, and they've all been looking at Australia as a relatively small market, and because of the lack of policy action by by the federal parliament um, and by state governments. They've been reluctant to bring EVs to the market, which are available elsewhere in Europe so um, and, and China. Okay, So Australia is seen as a small market, so why bother about it? It's just too much trouble. Right? There are very few electric vehicles actually available in Australia as it stands, right? Yeah, and so that's an issue in terms of, um, you know, 
obviously, if the, it's a chicken and egg problem, right? What comes first? If you had more more policy and and law reform leadership, there would be more um, different vehicles available. But I think now that with the reform of of some of this direct import laws, you're going to find more um, models of EVs and hybrids and plug-in hybrids available. Um, particularly from from December this year, and um, you know gradually those second hand vehicles are actually uh, going to be coming into Australia from Japan, um, just like they're available in New Zealand. And you will find that the the volume of these vehicles um, you know starts to starts to pick up. Michael, let me turn to you with a question. Picking up on this idea about manufacturers. Um, even though government has struggled to find a sort of coherent policy position, manufacturers themselves are trying to drive this change. For example, Toyota is aiming to sell 5.5 million electric vehicles annually by 2030. They're offering, uh, they're hoping to offer an electric version of all of their vehicles by 2025. Is it possible that the industry themselves might drive the change that the government has been unable to do? I I think it's more than possible. Uh, So, for example, a a political party suggesting a limit or a 50% target by 2030, they can't really do anything about that other than maybe subsidise a commercial provider. Um, Whereas a commercial provider setting that agenda for themselves, their entire strategy is based around that. So their marketing, their advertising, improving visibility, information awareness, and and government could have a role in that information space too, I think. Um, That's that's a a very important role that government could play as part of that institutional reform. But look, I, I think the commercial providers, the biggest problem is that wherever there's a risk of government intervention in the market, commercial providers in Australia sit back and wait because it's too risky. There's an element of sovereign risk if they if they attempt to deploy infrastructure that is suddenly caught up in a government agenda, then it's, it's, too, it's just too risky. And I think removing those... Um, Sovereign risks, if you will, from from the uh, from the market would be a, an important first step. But but look, certainly for um, I, I think one of the biggest challenges for the manufacturers is that it's the crossover point. At, at what point are people willing to purchase a new electric vehicle uh, and forego the existing value in the vehicles that they already have? Now, uh, again, until we have an active or mature market in that space uh, for the average person. It, it's not. Um, it's not really on the agenda. And even if you look at the Prius in its early forms, um, some of the current vehicles are actually more efficient without the hybrid than than what the Prius was when it was first released. Um, so you know, there are a lot of things to be sort of um, understood, I think, before consumers can think about what that that crossover point is. But from from the little bit of research we're putting together at the moment, it seems like it's some way off at this stage. James, what's your take on all well, that? So I just wanted to add that one of the things that we, you know, we've learned from the solar uh, PV market is is to get get policy and intervention for a while until you get this mass market volume, which then makes it attractive to to all sorts of companies to to do their thing. So one of the ways that you can get that volume, obviously, is for government to introduce a procurement uh, policy and say, okay, we of our own vehicles are going to buy this percentage of, of EVs. Okay, now clearly they're going to have lower running costs and government vehicles are just used around town anyway. It's a, it's a no-brainer. So in the ACT, they are doing this. Um, I'm not sure whether it's going to be 100% EV, but certainly they're moving towards this. Okay, so um, that's 
that's a clear, you know, that's an easy win um, procurement. One of the other things is, you know, I guess that that the the feds can lead in particular ways, like in terms of just clarifying and removing some of the doubts and uncertainties that are around there. Okay, so are we going to have a nationally uniform standard for charges? And and you know what is that? What is the standard there? Um, clarification of how the national electricity rules work in relation to this, um, because the national electricity rules in some ways haven't really caught up with this with this um, disruption to the electricity market also involving with charging. So if I own a charge point and I sell electricity through that to someone to charge their vehicle, does that make me automatically an electricity retailer? And now I need an expensive authorization from the National uh, Australian Energy Regulator or can we just say this is part of a distribution business? What if an electricity distribution company um, starts running EV charge points itself Okay, um, are they going to get caught up in national competition law that is it has this ring fencing idea that prevents distribution companies from doing retail electricity sales through through EV charging points? So some of these issues are like the the new technology is asking these these questions, and and you know the rulemakers have to catch up and and help by providing some leadership. So plenty of big questions there. But I do want to come back to your point, Liz, around health mm-hmm. and uh, the, the health benefits of uh, e-vehicles. We're recording this on Wednesday. It's World Environment Day. Um, and the combustion of fossil fuel has, of course, a negative impact on population health, uh, particularly in areas with dense traffic. The 2018 World Health Organization fact sheet on air pollution found that nine out of 10 people worldwide breathe polluted air. That's almost all urban residents on the planet. To what extent could an increase in the uptake of electric vehicles reduce the impact of uh, these negative health impacts, particularly around sort of cardiac and uh, respiratory disease. Thanks. Yes, the um, and back to your early comment in terms of World Environment Day um, is many don't seem to actually draw the link between environment and, and human health. And we, I mean, there's been a lot of recent talk on the social determinants of health. A lot of those actually factor into human health through the through the environment because people the poorer people exposed to worse environments and that this is the same in terms of air pollution that we've been talking um and so the the health of the environment is intrinsically important to human health and air pollution is a major thing as we're discussing with uh, with EVs um and just like one point for example with the um uh, the uh, defeat mechanisms that were Volkswagen uh, vehicles in Europe. Um, <clears throat> the you know the stats with that are atrocious. It's um, twelve hundred premature deaths just for those vehicles that were on the road. Um, Thirteen thousand life years lost, lost, a, and a um, combined cost of one point nine billion euros in in health costs purely because industry was. Um, was cheating and, and defeating the standards. And so the figures we don't have for Australia, um, you know, we haven't done the research. And again, any academic will tell you we do need more work on, um, on those things. But even before we know how atrocious the figures are, it doesn't deny the point that we really do need to up our game. I mean, our emission standards in Australia for sulfur is, um, I understand about the worst in the OECD. Um, 
and that's certainly one one area for improvement. Um, we certainly know at the moment that even the minimal stats we do have is that um, – uh, like for example, Sydney, um, the small, very small micron particles, two point five, um, has been um, identified as responsible for two point one percent of the deaths per year in Sydney. And you know, and then there's additional ones for ozone. There's additional ones for um, for the other pollutants. And what the problem does if people are breathing uh, can uh, polluted air, um, these are very irritating to the linings of the vessels. Now that can be. It um, gets through the through the lungs into into the bloodstream, um, and it irritates the small linings of the um, blood vessels supplying the heart. So you end up with heart attacks, uh, and you also end up with all the chronic respiratory diseases that we know about. Uh, these are increasing. There's also increasing the sensitivity in asthma. We know that asthma is increasing. So <clears throat> the the motivation. Um, is enormous because the the actual figures in Australia will be many many thousands per year of avoided deaths and avoided uh, avoided uh, loss of health, which translates to lost productivity um, and sort of miserable lives, and also impacting on families who have to care for people who are sick. So, so I mean, so the arguments are sort of irrefutable that we really do need to make this shift to to EVs and and uh, uh, motorised transport. I mean, we know passive transport is something that we in the public health movement are certainly advocating for all the other benefits you get from uh, from cycling, but like you can't you can't carry goods on a bicycle particularly well over long distances, etc. So we do need motorised transport. Um, public transport is a wonderful option, and even those can certainly be a transition to uh, to electric vehicles. Um, but the personal transport that is still going to stay uh, remain a factor in, in Australia for a very long time. And uh, so even without considering the climate change, which is in itself a huge you know, a huge topic for a, for a podcast in terms of its relationship with human health, not only now but in the future. Um, and so, again, we'd advocate for very, very rapid uh, transition using not only waiting for um, industry um, but certainly including the government, the government policies. And again, picking up on something Michael was saying earlier, um, one of the major roles of government is to look after the vulnerable, those that do not have the wherewithal to be able to go out and purchase these vehicles. So again, it's, it's providing mechanism and opportunities for those with the least options. Um, and because again, they're the ones that are inevitably going to be exposed to the worst environments, so they carry the biggest health burden and and the lowest capacity to be able to solve the problems themselves or indeed pay for their own health care. So there's plenty of evidence that you spelled mm. out there in terms of the benefits. But as a uh, as a, a public health researcher, do you get any sense that evidence is actually cutting through? Is actually making a difference? Is uh, has the the potential to turn into better policy? Not a lot of evidence at all. In fact, um, I've just finished um, examining a, um, a PhD from um, uh, from another university, which I might add was a particularly good one too. It was uh, It was a pleasure to read that one. Um, and that explored um, the political economy of health. Um, and it compared climate mitigation policies um, in um, uh, Europe, China, the US and Australia. Um, and Australia was the worst in terms of factoring in um, – Human health co-benefits as a as a as a motivator or a factor in terms of developing our climate mitigation policy, um, and so we know that climate mitigation policies in Australia has, <clears throat> leaves a lot to be desired. I think would be an understatement. Um, and again, this is what riles us so much because it um, it shifts the the burden 
Um, so like the profits go to the private industry, the burden goes to, to the health sector um, and the individuals who have to lump it in terms of lost years of life. Um, hence the fact we get so grumpy. We get seriously grumpy over this and, uh, and lose a lot of sleep. Um, and so it's hence the fact we think it's immoral, particularly when it is the responsibility of governments to look after their citizens um, and, as I said, particularly for the most vulnerable. So there is certainly room, A, for more stringent mitigation, EVs being a major part of that, um, and also to to do that with consideration for the, the benefits of the citizenry. I just want to throw in one other angle that we haven't covered yet, which is something that the, the federal you know, federal government have, uh, you know, tried to tried to avoid discussing too much, which is the national security aspect of the current um, arrangements for fossil fuel, liquid fuel supply. Now, Australia is a member of the International Energy Agency, and so we signed a, an agreement, international agreement with all the members of IEA. And when you look at the text of this agreement, it basically binds all the members of the IEA to help each other out in the event of a uh, fuel supply crunch like happened in the early 70s. Um, the problem is Australia just doesn't have these liquid fuel reserves. So uh, in terms of there's a 90-day requirement under the agreement. Um, so Australia's meant to have 90 days uh, reserve in case of some disruption, um, in case also that we, we're called upon to help neighbours and members of IEA. Um, so the clear way to you know, really address that is, apart from addressing it directly, the, the way to address this is to say, well, we've got an abundant solar and, and renewable energy resource in Australia. Um, we can resolve that problem by moving more directly towards you know, using renewable energy to fuel electric vehicles. Um, so... There's another whole conversation around hydrogen and, and um, you know, the, the hydrogen as a method of, of storage of, of excess renewable energy uh, generation. Um, but we'd, we'd have to come to that another time. Might be the subject for another podcast because I do want to draw this one to uh, a close. Uh, it's been fascinating discussion with lots of big issues raised. But we've got a new government in place. We've got Scott Morrison there. He's presumably got a lot of clout after winning his victory. And I want to ask each of you to make one policy recommendation to uh, to Scott, because I'm sure he's listening, um, on how you would go about encouraging uh, the uptake of electric vehicles through policy. Perhaps, Michael, if I can start with you, what's your one recommendation that might help here? It's quite difficult because um, immediately I think of the issues with the fuel excise, which will disappear soon. At the moment, it is actually an incentive for EVs, but it has to be changed and we probably have to adopt some form of road pricing, registration reduction and so on. Um, but I think there's an opportunity here to be thinking about those incentives for EVs in terms of registration and other areas that do not impact on the most vulnerable who tend to own older, less efficient cars and live further away from work. So if we were thinking of the fairness around the current arrangements with the fuel excise and how we might change road user charging uh, into the future, thinking about EVs, I think that's where the greatest opportunities are, not just for EVs, but for reducing congestion and, and all sorts of other uh, issues we're facing in our private transport at the moment. 
Great. James, what's your recommendation? Okay, look, given that, you know, tax is a bit of a dirty word and difficult to uh, move ahead with a tax-based policy, which logically would give tax incentives for EVs and introduction of stricter taxation on on conventional polluting vehicles, new vehicles, um, really probably the, the most politically feasible option is to move ahead with some kind of grant-based program um, following the model in New Zealand of a contestable fund. So you have a fund of money that's available and the entire EV industry can apply to a panel of experts um, you know, for access to that fund for projects relating to um, EV charging, infrastructure, R&D, all sorts of uh, market facilitation um, initiatives, um, but it's a, a contestable fund where you have to apply and win a competitive process, a merit-based process to access that funding. Great. And last word to you, Liz. I would probably go for the broader one, and that would be to um, to recommend that, uh, that the government, and indeed for this to follow for all, um, to adopt, um, adopt a health in all policies uh, framework. And within that, then that would filter through to whatever policies are being generated at the time. You're bearing in mind what's actually going to be the ultimate flow through to, to advancing human health. And there's, you know, the cuts to the health budget are absolutely massive. Increases in productivity are massive if you can actually consider and put just the overarching lens of health through human health through through all of these. And just, you know, just before cutting out here is um, the, you know, we're a signatory to the Paris Agreement. That actually stipulates that health must be considered in these in these policies. Um, to date, Australia's not doing it. We're not actually looking at um, health policies um, with uh, with climate involved and indeed with emissions, um, all of which, of course, is tied up in, in, intrinsically with um, with EVs. So, for the moral of, of that, we definitely need to move on that. And health and all policies would be uh, would be a good way to go. Well, three very positive proposals there. I would like to thank all three of you for a really stimulating and fascinating discussion. I've found it very interesting. I'm sure, I'm sure our listeners have too. So thank you, Michael. Thank you, James. And thank you, Liz. And we look forward to all those policies coming into reality. <laughs> thank you, Martin. That, thanks so much. Cheers. Hi, I'm Mark Kenny. Each week on the Democracy Sausage Pod, we serve up fresh, meaty analysis of Australia's politics and policy and chew the fat with some of the country's leading experts. It's the podcast for those who like sizzling scrutiny with just a touch of sauce. You can find Democracy Sausage on iTunes, Spotify or at policyforum.net slash podcasts. Welcome back and thanks once again to James, Michael and Liz for a really fascinating discussion that covered huge amount of territory and really raised some of the very complex issues that uh, underpin electric vehicles in Australia. Um, very interested to get your thoughts, listeners, on what you thought of that discussion. Do keep sending in the feedback, the questions and comments 
Um, and you can do that via Twitter, where we're at Policy Forum, on the Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod, or just shoot us through an email, podcast at policyforum.net. Now, I want to go over uh, some comments that we've received on one of our previous podcasts, Sarah. Um, and the podcast was called The Oz Policy Issue, What the Country Voted For. It was a panel discussion that drew together John Hewson, Paul Burke, Warwick McKibben, and Liz Allen. And the panel that looked It's an at, all-star panel, it's Martin. It's an all-star panel, yeah. Uh, and an all-star, almost, almost all-Crawford panel as well. <laughs> yes, well, all-star, all-Crawford, all the time. <laughs> and the panel looked at the policy promises that the country basically signed up for as a result of the recent federal election. Um, and whether those commitments will go about delivering on meeting the challenges facing the country. So we've got a few comments on this. We had a comment from John Stevens on Facebook who wrote, uh, give a couple of months, then the broken promises will follow. They always let things settle down before the bad news begin. Fairly cynical take from John there, but probably a realistic one. And then there's a whole thread that you can read in its entirety, but here's a snapshot of some of the responses. Uh, Suzette McClellan said, One down, first tax cuts, needs legislation. ScoMo was told by ATO he ignored it. Why? Deb Ross wrote, he won't break his promise to the press that helped get him over the line. They want their $1,000 tax concession. He promised them using everybody's money to pay for his win. Uh, They're asking him about when already. Pity they weren't interested in the public's interest whilst polling at the federal election a bit more. And another comment unrelated to the previous one by Paul Burgess, who wrote, One of the most important commodities on earth, water and food, our government wants nothing to do with both of them. There's something very wrong with this picture. Always talks about prosperity, no water, no food, no prosperity. I'm going to give you a pick here, Sarah. What do you want to dip into and respond to on those? Well, geez, Martin, I think I'd rather go back to talking about Trump in the UK because this is kind of bleak. But uh, we've already seen with the government and the thread on Facebook attests to this that the tax cuts promised are now being shown as being unrealistic and indeed potentially not possible. But now what we have instead of a uh, denial of the cuts is a postponement. So hold that thought. We'll see what happens. We have lots more podcasts to come. To the final point, which is about a different issue It's very, very interesting that within this election and some of the pollsters and pundits have come out to say that it was really the turn in Queensland and the debate around Adani that led to an unexpected ScoMo re-election victory. I think that this question about attention to food, to water, to environment really raises the specter of that particular debate. So Australia now as a country is really grappling with a historic reliance, a two-speed economy on minerals and wool. Uh, And how do we deal with a transition away from fossil fuels when that particular industry has been so central to both our economy, but also to communities and their identities? And so I think that our listener here has picked up on a really good point. When is the government going to take leadership? And the question that comes to my mind is, when is the opposition as well going to take leadership? Because we already see backtracking in relation to fossil fuels from the Labor Party. And I realize here that Paul's question was about water and food. And so I'm just really extending that to natural resources and also to a question that I work on a lot, which is how do we protect our environment by transforming 
the energy space and moving away from fossil fuels. And so I think I think Paul's right. I think we need a lot more attention to basic environmental issues. And it is concerning that the attention of the government is able to be diverted elsewhere, it seems, quite easily, and also that there doesn't seem to be a very principled stance on these issues on either side of the political aisle. I think that energy transition thing is a very interesting one, a very frustrating one as someone who watches politics. Because when you talk about Adani and you talk about, you know, the threats to jobs in the coal mining industry, it's often presented as kind of zero-sum game, you know, like these people are going to lose their jobs and there is zero replacement. But in actual fact, an energy transition is likely to bring, you know, thousands of thousands of new jobs. Why aren't we hearing that kind of narrative from our political leaders? Well, my short answer is I'm not really sure uh, why we don't hear that narrative. But the cynic inside me would say because we do have a historic economic dependence on the mining industry. And throughout that history, that industry has become very powerful. They have a big voice. They have a big lobby. And they're very influential. And I think another important aspect of this is we do talk about the energy transition. So this isn't the energy fall off the cliff. This is help societies, communities, help the environment, help the economy to transition, which suggests that there's going to be some period of change from one energy source to another or from one economic reliance on particular fossil fuels to other resources And Paul Burke, who's been on the show and indeed was on the episode that you mentioned earlier, he's done some work around coal transitions and looking at the economics and unemployment around, for example, the Hazelwood coal fire shutdown in Victoria. And there's a lot of data to suggest that this can be managed well and that transitions are possible and we don't necessarily have to introduce new fossil fuels in order to provide regional and rural jobs. And really for Australia's future, because coal is a finite resource, we should be looking for these longer term jobs. So many thanks again, uh, John, Suzette, Deb and Paul for those excellent comments. That certainly gave us lots to talk about. Uh, And if you want to join in the discussion, do so on the Facebook group, Policy Forum Pod. We'll be really interested to hear your thoughts uh, I'd also like to welcome a few members, a few new members of the Facebook group. So uh, hello to Shelley Zhao, Tracy Hurst, Simeon Lawler, Jeffrey Wang, David Flynn, Rick Sondalini, Robin Hakilis, Andrew Cosson, Sandra Afolashadi Nuoi. Uh, welcome to the group. It's fantastic to have you here. And thanks to those new members who gave us some suggestions for future pods. Uh, we want to pick out a couple of them. David suggested we should do something about economic inequality and climate change. Tracy suggested we should do something about how different countries are using well-being measures. How do you feel about those two, Sarah? Well, I think that the conversation that you and I just had before definitely signals that there's a lot to talk about around David's topic of economic inequality and climate change. And indeed, here at the Energy Change Institute, we recently produced a communique about social equity in the energy transition. So any of our listeners interested in that, I'm sure we can put a link to the communique, which has six key policy areas that we need to attend to in order to better ensure social equity in this energy transition. 
As to the second one, absolutely. There is so much to discuss there. It's very interesting. There's an argument now, and Jeffrey Sachs is one of the key people who makes this argument, that GDP is not really a good measure of how a nation is performing in a holistic manner. And it's actually, he argues, used in a way that was never intended. And so broader resilience and well-being measures are much better attuned to help us to understand what is the actual current state of our society. And we have some terrific researchers here at Crawford, Sharon Bessel uh, with the Poverty Index, and they're measuring uh, individual levels of poverty. That's really important work. So I think you'd have a terrific podcast for that one. I think that is one of the policy issues that we're going to hear a lot more about over the next couple of years. We've just had New Zealand hand down its first well-being budget in the UK. Uh, One of the candidates for the leadership of the Lib Dems is also talking about the UK moving to a sort of well-being uh, budget model. So it'll be very interesting to see how that kind of develops over, over the next year or two. So thanks once again, David and Tracy, for those excellent suggestions. Who knows? Maybe we'll make them into podcasts. And if you do, uh, if we do, then you will get your hands on one of these much-coveted mugs. Uh, so that brings us to the end for this for today's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. Um, before I go, I do want to say a quick thanks to those people who've left us a review on iTunes. We really appreciate it. And so many nice things have been said about us. It's, uh, it's very generous. If you want to leave us a review on iTunes, please go ahead. Be our guest. It'll only take you 30 seconds or so. Um, make sure you click on that fifth star. Uh, it'll be a huge help to us in getting the word out of the, about this podcast. Sarah, many thanks for being my co-host today. It's been great to have you back in the studio. Thanks, Martin. It's wonderful as always to be here. Well, we'll be back next week with another Policy Forum pod. But until then, from me, Martin Pierce, cheerio. And from me, Sarah Vice, listen up, write in, and be well. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.